God, we approach your word in humility this morning. We pray for understanding, Lord, from you. We pray for an open heart to receive from you exactly what you want from us today. God, I, I think of the words of Jesus in John 15 who says, apart from me, you can do nothing. At Jesus, you are the vine, we are the branches. We can bear no fruit apart from you and you working in and through us. And so we pray for that here today. God, we are fully dependent upon you and your spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand this passage. So God, I pray as, as we look at your word or help us to understand that it is, it is you who is speaking to us. God, we want to hear from you, not from a man, but from you. So God, would you speak and speak with authority so we might be changed today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I uh, began the sermon uh, emphasizing that uh, we at Pennington Park Church, we are wholeheartedly devoted to the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures. And, uh, and I am so thankful that that is uh, baked into the DNA of our church. I am so incredibly thankful for that. And yet, I wanna begin this morning with a question. When was the last time that you obeyed the following commands in the Bible? 2 Corinthians 13, verse two, greet one another with a holy kiss. Anybody kiss anybody this morning as you were greeting, besides Lou Gibbs? <laughs> or 1 Timothy 5, 23, stop drinking only water. Use a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Last time you were sick, did you stop drinking water and only drink wine? I'll stop there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, men, when was the last time that you prayed and you lifted up your hands while doing so? Or how about the Old Testament? Leviticus chapter 14, verses 43 through 45, destroy your house if you have persistent mildew. In fact, in that passage, I actually asked the priest to come and inspect the house or the pastor to come, which you wouldn't want that, but it, it actually commands you to destroy the house with persistent mildew. Th those are all commands. There are many more of those. Those are commands and not suggestions. So why do we ignore those and yet we uphold other ones such as Ephesians 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, women are not to exercise authority or teach over men in the church. Why does it seem like we pick and choose which commands to follow and then other commands, it just seems like we completely disregard? Or more specific to our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians 11, why do we uphold this idea of headship of gender distinctions and gender role distinctions. And yet I'm looking out here and I don't see any women with their head covered. Why is that? Why do we, does it seem like we pick and choose? Well, as we look at our passage today and specifically verses three through 16, I wanna share just on the front end this morning, I think two principles that are really, really helpful as we think about interpreting the Bible and understanding the Bible. And I'm gonna give these on the front end and then you're gonna see me kind of bake these in throughout the passage. Here's the first uh, principle. When you're understanding the Bible, interpreting the Bible, scripture interprets scripture, right? Meaning we take passages that might be less clear and we understand them, we interpret them through passages that are clear. You saw me do that with this idea of headship 
from verse three, taking other passages that are more clear and understanding them in light of them. Scripture interprets scripture. The second key principle in understanding the Bible is that there is a difference between a timeless principle or a timeless command that is for all people at all times and all places compared to something that is cultural or a cultural expression of that timeless principle that is limited to a particular group of people in a particular time period. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 just so happens to have both, that we have a timeless principle and we have a cultural expression of that principle. And what I'm gonna do this morning, I'm just gonna walk through both aspects and then we're gonna try to get to some application towards the end, all right? So here's the first thing that I wanna point out. This is the, the timeless principle from verse three. We spent much of last week on this, but what we see from verse three with this idea of headship is that men and women are equal in worth and value, and yet they have different roles, all right? And one distinction from men and women is that men have been given authority over women in the church and in the home in order for us to flourish. And we, again, we spent much of our time on this idea of headship from verse three. Paul mentions that word three different times in really three different relationships from verse three. And last week we looked at other places in the Bible like Genesis, like Ephesians, again, to allow scripture to interpret scripture, especially to explain passages that are less clear. And through that, I presented the view related to gender roles, the view of biblical complementarianism that we hold at this church. In other words, men and women, they are equal, they are equal in value and worth, but they have distinct roles and yet they are mutually dependent. There's an interdependence that we see throughout the Bible as it relates to men and women, and yet they have distinct roles. Now what's interesting is that the Bible does outline a few distinctions within the roles of men and women, and yet the Bible is very silent about, uh, about other specifics related to how we work this out. We only have a few distinctions about what men should do, about women should do in the church and in the home. And, and, and so for us, as we think about this timeless principle, and what it means for us today, we've got to take the command in scriptures and apply it in 2021, all right? And for Paul here in Corinth, we see this timeless principle being expressed in verses four through six, and it has something to do with head coverings, all right? Now, I want you to understand that the problem here in Corinth, the problem that Paul is addressing specifically is that men and women, they were not expressing this timeless principle that was leading to honor, honoring the gender role distinctions and honoring God, but they were living in such a way that was bringing about shame. Okay, they were acting in a way that brought about shame by blurring the lines of gender distinctions and gender role distinctions, and it was impacting their worship. Okay, this is in the context of, of the Corinthians gathering together in corporate worship. So, Paul is helping them to understand how to culturally express this timeless principle from verse three. It has something to do with head coverings. And what we find Paul doing here as he gives these directives, we see even with Paul a complementarian view. We see men and women are equal. They are interdependent. Verse 11 makes that clear. 
And yet there is a distinction as they gather for worship. Men are not to have their heads covered and women are. All right, notice how Paul counsels them to distinguish their role and their genders. Paul tells the women to do something very specific with the covering of their heads. Now he gave them this directive in order to reflect and to uphold their distinction from and their submission to their husband. So there's no confusion. All right, in this time period in Corinth, for women not to have their heads covered in the gathering of their worship was a symbol of dishonor and shame toward herself, towards her metaphorical head, her husband, and towards God's beautiful design in gender distinction. All right, in fact, in verse six, Paul says that if women are, are going to, to worship with an uncovered head, then they should just go the whole way and cut their hair short just like a man, which in this context would have been even more shameful. But he tells the men not to cover their head because for them to cover their head would go against the role distinctions that God has put into place from the very beginning. And, and all of this, this was impacting their worship, okay? And I wanna say on the front end here, just so that we can exhale, for us today, head coverings mean something very different than what it meant in first century Corinth. Okay, so today, for us to, for the women to wear head coverings would be an inappropriate application of this timeless principle. Maybe not several decades ago, but for us today, it's not the call to kind of resurrect this custom today. But for us, what we need to pay attention to is that our outward appearance, our behavior should uphold the role distinctions and the gender distinctions that God has given us from the very beginning. And I think this is important. It's not just the behavior, but it's also our appearance. The reason why this is important is again, because of, of what culture has been moving us towards of, of normalizing the interchangeability between men and women, and it has impacted the outward appearance. I was just reading in the New York Times last week, this article said this, it said that gender fluidity is entering its next phase as men are increasingly stepping out in public in skirts and frocks. Okay, it says, for the longest time, people were so stuck on being one way or the other, referring to the waning gender dress codes. But now you see a lot of guys in dresses that don't identify at all of that feminine. In, in the article, it lists celebrities doing this on The Tonight Show, on the GQ magazine. And it said this, it said that in, on the internet, searches for fashion pieces that include the word agender increased by 33% since the beginning of the year. And so on a global fashion platform that, that generated data from 17,000 brands and retailers. Page views for uh, feather boas spiked 1,500% after Harry Styles wore it on the 2021 Grammys. All right, now, as they were talking to uh, one person said, still, there is something bracing about a cultural pivot point that allows for, for some guys to wear jeans and sneakers when they feel like it and to wear the shortest mini skirt that they have when they go out to the grocery store. They interviewed one guy, Brennan Dunlop, who said it was a serious life hack 
to discover that we can make our own rules. We need to understand something, church, that as the culture continues to normalize the fluidity of gender and they start to blur the lines all the more, the church has to stand for what the Bible says related to how God has created us, male and female, that we don't have a choice here. We don't approach how God has made us as a male and female and say, I think God made a mistake here. I'm going to change. I'm going to become something that God did not create me related to my gender. And I think that this idea of where we see culture, I think has the ability to impact how we live out, not only our appearance, but also the way that we live out our role distinctions. And so this principle for us, I think is really helpful to make sure that as we see culture go one way, we stand upon what God's word actually says. I think that's one application of what we see in this passage. Now, Paul continues, and in verses seven through 12, uh, Paul, I think, grounds this idea in creation. All right, I'm gonna go slowly with these verses because these are, these are difficult to understand. Let's start in verses seven through eight. And again, Paul grounds us in the creation account and then verses 11 through 12, he guards us from a misunderstanding. Start in verse seven. Paul says, man is the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. All right, now this, again, is from Genesis 2, which we looked at last week to help explain that the creation order that God made man first and then female is theologically important to communicate something about role distinction and not necessarily value, okay? Now, let me be clear, though. These verses here, verses seven and eight, do not imply that Christ is not the woman's head, nor that she is not the image and the glory of God. That would go against Genesis 1:27. Paul's point here is that man was created by God through Christ and woman was created by God through Christ, through man, through Adam, taking the rib of Adam. Okay, so the point here is not to lessen woman's intimacy with Jesus or even her direct access to God. Because here in this church, we see women who are prophesying and who are praying in the worship gathering. The point here that Paul is making is to clarify woman's relationship to the man. That man is God's glory because he came from God through Christ without coming through woman. And so he is to reflect Christ's true nature who is his head. Woman, on the other hand, is man's glory because she came from God through Christ and through man. And so she is to reflect and express this by submitting to her metaphoric head, which is her husband. Now, this is a way that the wife is her husband's glory when she joyfully submits to her husband. As Proverbs chapter 12, verse four says, an excellent wife is the crown or the glory of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. All right, now, in addition, you look at verse nine, Paul states that women are created for man. All right, again, 
Uh, we looked at this idea last week in Genesis chapter 2, 18, as God was creating woman, was creating woman not to be inferior to man, but not to be a co-leader with man, but to be the man's helper, to be this coming alongside. Now, ladies, please do not misunderstand me. Please do not miss this, that just because God has created you as helper with a different role than the man, that does not make you less than, that does not make you inferior to the man. Just because you have a, your, your value is not dependent on your role. Your value is dependent on being created in the image of God. Furthermore, this Hebrew word for helper in Genesis chapter 2, 18, this shows up 19 different times in the Old Testament. 19, 16 of the 19 refers to God himself. God takes on this role of helper, of coming alongside humanity. Therefore, we can conclude that for you to be this helper doesn't make you inferior or lacking value, but just the opposite. If the Old Testament is portraying God himself as helper, your role as helper is a glorious one. It is a role that is indispensable as you are interdependent with, man, there are things that you do that we can't do. There are things that you do so much better than men, and we need you in order to best image God as we live for his glory. All right, let's get to verse 10. I'm sure you're waiting for this. Verse 10 says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Let's just stop there for a moment. What Paul means here with this phrase is that the wife is to have this symbol of authority, which was her head covering here in Corinth. And it was a symbol that correctly expressed her submission to and her uh, distinction from her, 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 uh, her husband, who was her metaphoric head by covering her physical head. All right, so this is important because in Corinth, at this church, women were praying, women were prophesying, which was so different than what they were used to in the Jewish synagogue. In the Jewish synagogue worship services, women had no freedom to do anything. They were better seen from than being heard from. And so Paul here is giving them a symbol to distinguish them, the women, from the men. All right, this head covering was a symbol of the authority of her coming underneath her husband as they worship and as they gather because of the praying and because of the prophesying. Now, what in the world does Paul mean in verse 10 when he says, because of the angels? In short, I don't know. <laughs> all right, can I say that out loud? Like all the commentaries I read, all the theologians are like, yeah, it could be this, it could be that, but we don't know. We have no idea what Paul is exactly referring to. So there are popular views. I'm gonna save you uh, listing all the crazy views out there. Here's the view that I think was most convincing, most compelling, and I think it starts with understanding uh, one of the biggest problems that was going on here in Corinth. One of the biggest problems was related to their view of the end times and really the timing of the end times. And we've talked about this a few times because we've seen this lead to numerous problems. The Corinthians here had an over-realized eschatology. All right, they were rejecting our view, which is this already but not yet tension. 
All right, we believe related to the end times that the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully. For the Corinthians, they were living in this over-realized. It's already here and it's here in full. And so for them, they were thinking they were already living out their role in the future in the new heavens and the new earth. And we've seen a few implications of this. We've seen this related to marriage. Marriage isn't in the new heavens and the new earth. And so they wanted to get rid of marriage. We looked at that in chapter six and seven. Related to sex, they wanted to abstain from sex. There's no mention of that in the new heavens and the new earth. For them, the way that they viewed their physical bodies, they could do whatever they wanted with the bodies because all that matters is the soul. Well, another piece of this was that for the Corinthians, they believe that in the new heavens and the earth, they're going to be like the angels And for the angels, there isn't any gender distinction. And so for them, they're thinking, let's just live that out now. Let's just blur the lines here. And so Paul says, because of this, or because of the angels, Paul exhorts them towards gender distinctive behavior and appearance. It's my best guess, all right, what that means there. Now, in verses 11 through 12, I think Paul gives a very helpful warning about misunderstanding this passage. I think this brings great balance to this whole passage. From verses 11 and 12, we can conclude that men should not be arrogant or abusive in their role, and women should not feel as if they are inferior. Both are indispensable. Both are interdependent and sustained by God. He says, as woman... It's created from man, so man is born through woman. So this headship idea, this authority that's been given to man from verse three, that's expressed here in Corinth, in the head coverings, in verse six and 10, does not justify male self-sufficiency or abuse or female inferiority. And I so appreciate this from Paul because this warning here, we see Paul laboring against both effects of the fall, against the arrogance of males and against women feeling as if they are inferior. And I like how Tim Keller puts this. He says that we can affirm that each gender has a unique and non-interchangeable glory that the other does not. The Bible invites us to celebrate our differences as well as our commonality, that I would say we are both created in the image of God and to uphold that, all right? Now, the next thing I want us to see, verses 13 through 16, I think this is also supported. Paul further grounds this in the principle or the concept of what was proper. Look at verse 13, he says, judge for yourselves, right? In in other words, kind of what does nature teach? What was most proper? What was most natural? And here in this context, it's for men to have short hair, women to have longer hair. Maybe in our context today in America, Paul could say, doesn't nature teach you that man should not wear a dress, right? In other words, we should uphold the way that God has created us, what was proper, right? And then of course, verse 16, he exhorts us not to be contentious, okay? Now, as we seek to apply this passage, right? I know you guys were all kind of coming in here thinking, man, what's he gonna do with this? Are the women gonna be in church discipline for not having their heads covered? Like what's going on here? How do we take this timeless principle and apply it in our context in 2021? Here's the temptation. 
It's for us to come across passages like 1 Corinthians 11 or other passages and for us to conclude, well, head coverings mean something different for us today than it meant for the Corinthians or whoever's in the first century. Therefore, let's just move on, right? This isn't applicable for us. Let's move on to verse 17 about the Lord's Supper. This has nothing for us. And I would say that is a mistake. What we need to understand is this timeless principle and how to express it in our context and our time period today. What does the head coverings look like for us today? And I think the short answer to that question is to live out and to understand biblical complementarianism and how to live that out well. And I think in order for us to do that today, we, we need to, to zoom out a bit and we need to understand what complementarianism provides for us in the role distinctions. And I think it's so helpful in, in understanding a concept in the Bible, it, it's sometimes helpful to understand what it's not. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm actually gonna take us through four views of gender roles, we'll close with complementarianism, and kind of do some comparing and contrasting that leads us to some practical application towards the end, all right? The, the thing that I want us to understand, this is from a guy, Mason, who's a pastor. He, he wants us to understand that there is a spectrum when we understand gender roles. And even within these four popular camps, there's a spectrum. Okay, and I'm gonna kind of unpack each of these in order for us to better understand biblical complementarianism, okay? So let's start with feminism for a moment and understand what does this view provide related to gender roles? Is it biblical or is it not? Feminists, they seek to defend the equal rights of women in all spheres of life, okay? Politically, economically, socially, uh, and spiritually, and there's good in that. Like that is something to pursue, but they take it a step further. And for a lot of feminists, they perceive any type of masculinity with skepticism, with fear, and even at times with anger. That for a lot of feminists, they don't believe in the authority of the Bible, but if they do, they have a low view of scripture and they view it with skepticism because the Bible was of course written by men in order to protect the power of men. And so they hold it loosely. So for the feminists, it's not just that men and women are equal. It's not just that men and women have interchangeable roles and functions. It's not just that whatever men can do, women can do. But for the feminists, it's whatever men can do, women can do better. Women can do without abuse. Women can do without uh, oppression, like what men tend to bring to the table. And so for the feminists, they want to suppress men because men always bring with them abuse and power whenever they have authority. So they seek to put the men down, all right? The next few though, okay, we'll go to the other end of the spectrum. Look at patriarchy. And just like feminism, uh, there's some truth in it, but also some error. This few basically believes that the family is the foundation of society led by the authority of the man. Where the family goes, culture goes, the country goes. And for the most part, that's true. Like that's biblical. We've seen that historically being accurate. But here's where this view becomes unhealthy. Some in this camp go a step further and they say that women are inferior to men. And, and they may never say this out loud, but their actions speak as if women are less than. 
And some within this position hold to the label of an over-submission, where some in this camp believe and demand that women are not only under the authority of their father before they're married, or under the authority of their husband when they're married, or under the spiritual authority of the church, of the elders and pastor, but women are under the authority of all men and in the same way. Or that women are to submit to their husbands at all costs, even if it's leading them towards abuse or towards sin in some way. And we see this role getting played out in the church where women can't lead Bible studies, Women can't vote in member meetings. Women aren't allowed to have any role in the church gatherings. For this particular view, they're better seen than heard. And we've seen a massive amount of evil and abuse take place with this particular view. All right, then another view here, I would say the egalitarianism. All right, this is extremely popular. This is similar, but different than feminism. Um, They believe, like feminists, that men and women have equal worth, and there are no role distinctions among them, okay? Egalitarianists, unlike feminists though, are not as skeptical of men in leadership as long as nothing is off limits for women. Okay, so they rejoice in men being elders and pastors and preachers just as long as women can. And so anything a man can do, a woman can do, not just in the workplace, but in the home and in the church. So women can preach, women can be elders, women can be spiritual leaders of their home. And a lot of egalitarians argue from the Bible. They would view role distinction as a result of the fall and not something we see in Genesis 1 and 2. They would even point to passages like Galatians 3.28 where Paul says, in Christ, there's no male or female, you're all one in Jesus. They'll point to strong female leaders throughout the Bible like Esther and Deborah, even instrumental female leaders in the early church like Priscilla and even uh, women evangelists in Philippians 4, women praying and prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11. So there are godly Bible-believing people in this camp, but I, along with the elders of this church, we disagree with this position and the way that they interpret many of those passages of scripture. And I think that there are implications to this position that go against ultimate flourishment. Uh, not, to, not, not only to mention that the fact that the idea of the Trinity, how we understand being created in the image of God, and we see role distinctions among the Trinity along the lines of how we display the gospel in and through marriage. All right, now this takes us to complementarianism. All right, this is the view that we hold at this church. We believe that God has created men and women with equal worth but they are distinct in their roles and functions, and yet they're mutually dependent upon one another. That men and women, they have spiritual gifts, they have strengths, and they will use those sometimes in different ways and in different arenas. Now, I wanna stress the fact that there is a spectrum in each of these four camps, but of course, within complementarianism, there's a spectrum. Uh, There's one end of the spectrum uh, called broad complementarianism, that those in that camp take this principle of complementarianism and they apply it broadly to places where the Bible doesn't necessarily speak into. So they'll apply it to the workplace and they'll say women cannot have the same role as men. Women can't be CEOs or women can't work outside the home or women can't do this or that in the workplace. 
My particular view falls more closely to the narrow complementarianism view, meaning wherever the Bible applies complementarianism, that's where we need to apply it. And what we see the Bible most clearly apply complementarianism is in the home and in the church. Now, I wanna state that, that that's our position and our position papers on the website if you wanna learn more. At the same time, I want to say this, that we understand and, and we deeply lament the fact that even within complementarianism, there has been great abuse done by men using their authority in sinful ways. And, and we lament that and we would say from here that we reject that as biblical complementarianism. That is not according God's beautiful design. That whenever we see men abuse their authority, whether acting like a dictator or even being overly passive, like what Adam was in the garden, we reject that. That's not biblical complementarianism. And so as I lead into kind of giving us more practical applications of this passage related to gender roles, men, I wanna to talk to you just for a moment here. As we think about the role that God has given us, this idea of headship and authority, God has given us spiritual headship and this authority not to do whatever we want to do, but God has given us spiritual headship, authority to empower us in order to do what we ought to do. And what we ought to do is to get up on that cross daily and die. That our role with our authority is not to act like the boss or like the dictator in the home, to treat our, our wives as servants and for them to do whatever we want them to do. Our role, the way that God has structured what it means to be a husband as we follow the example of Jesus who sacrificially leads and loves the church, that is our role. I love the way that C.S. Lewis explains it. He talks about this idea of headship between a husband and a wife to mean that the husband wears the crown. Husband, you wear a crown, but it's not a crown made of gold. It is a crown made of thorns. Similarly to the crown that Jesus wore, this crown of thorns that he wore right before he was crucified. Husbands, your role as you lead and love your wife sacrificially is to die and to die daily. So in light of that, there's so much more I could say about that. Let me ask you two questions, husbands, as we think about applying this. First question is this, if, if there is a spectrum because no one is perfect with this. If there's a spectrum and on this side, it, it, it's the, the side where you are selflessly dying to yourself, you are leading and loving your wife well. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it, it's, it's where you are selfishly demanding, acting like a dictator, or, or maybe even acting pass, sinfully passive like Adam. Where would you fall on that spectrum? Where would your wife say that you fall on that spectrum, or, or your kids, or people who, who know your family, know your marriage on that spectrum. We, we need to be erring on this side, pointing towards this, following the example of Jesus. And then secondly, husbands, I wanna ask you this. When you think about your wife for a moment, you think about this beautiful gift that God has given you. Who she is in Christ is she her best version in Jesus? Does she look more like Jesus because she's married to you 
compared to if she wasn't married to you. In other words, because of the way that you're leading her, pouring into her spiritually, the way that you set the spiritual temperature in your home, is she closer to Jesus? Does she love Jesus more? Is she in the Bible more? Is she praying more? Is she repenting of sin because of the example and the leadership that you set in the home? That by God's grace, he's giving you this role to wash her in the word of God. All right, women, let's talk for a moment. I know I'm treading on thin ice here, but let me just speak into your role for a moment. Ephesians 5 calls you to submit to your husbands. And look, I know that that's the S word. <laughs> I know that when we think about submission, we kind of wince at that word, right? It's so unpopular. It's been, it's been abused time and time again. And I know, wives, that your husband is imperfect, just like we all are, that we make mistakes, that we can be sinfully passive like Adam in the garden. But I want to challenge you and maybe to maybe change the optics here, that your ability to ground yourself in the gospel so firmly to lead you to joyfully submit to your husband is dependent not on your husband's ability to lead well, but it's in your ability to be obedient to the Lord. That you submit not because of your husband, you submit to be, because God is perfect and he is your heavenly father. And look, again, this doesn't make you inferior. This doesn't make you less than. If anything, this is a glorious role because as you joyfully submit to your husband, you are reflecting Jesus, who Jesus submitted to his heavenly father. That for you wives, if you're struggling with this, press into Jesus, press into the garden of Gethsemane where we find Jesus who is just hours before dying on a cross is sweating drops of blood. He cries out to his father, he says, let this cup pass from me. And yet we see him submit by saying, not what I want, but your will be done. Wife, this is your calling. This is a way for you to apply this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Love how Jackie Hill Perry uh, describes it. She says, it's not that God has called me submit to my husband because I'm just this weak-willed, brittle-backed woman, but rather it's a way for me to mimic God. This is a way for you to reflect the image of God and the example that Jesus has set for you. Now, as I close, I just want to remind us that when the husband and the wife, when we live out our roles well, grounded in who Jesus is, we actually put the gospel on display. This is amazing here. In Ephesians 5, and I think this is another strong argument for complementarianism, as we see kind of the, the job descriptions of husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, Paul calls the husband to lead and love their wife the way that Jesus does so for the church and for the wife to submit to your husband as the church submits to Jesus. We would not want the husband and the wife to interchange their role any more than we want the church to interchange their role with Jesus. We don't want Jesus submitting to the church, right? So there is role distinction there, but the beauty of that and what's kind of sandwiched in the middle there, Paul says, this mystery is profound. But then he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. He puts that right in the middle there, leading us to conclude that when the husband and the wife, when you live out your, your roles well, 
You are revealing the mystery of the gospel to those around you. That when you are faithful in this, you become in your marriage a visible icon of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that Jesus loves the church and the way that the church follows Jesus. And the question I have for you today is, is that true? Would people around you look at your marriage, look at the way that you live out your roles and say, wow, that is so different than the culture around me? How are you guys doing this? Like, why are you flourishing in this way? Tell me more about this. Like the challenge here is to put Jesus's love for the church on display in the way that you live out your roles. And I've got a word of encouragement for you today. And I said this last week, and I hope this is encouraging today, but you're gonna fail in this. Like you probably already failed this weekend. Let's just be real for a moment. Like you probably failed in some aspect to live this role out perfectly. And yet I want to encourage us today with the, with the reality that Jesus and Jesus alone fulfills this role perfectly. That Jesus provides the blueprint for both the husband and the wife. That for husbands, we see the way that Jesus leads the church and loves the church sacrificially. Husbands, fix your eyes on Jesus. And for the wife, again, we see Jesus fulfilling this role perfectly in his submission to the Father. Wife, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And here's where the gospel becomes so, so important. Like this is why the gospel is so powerful because the gospel takes us who are weak and weary and frail and imperfect. God takes us, those kinds of vessels who fail time and time again, and he empowers us through his spirit to do what we cannot do alone. That God demonstrates his power perfectly in and through our weakness. Because here's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you cannot earn God's approval on your own. You cannot conjure up enough good works, enough good deeds, enough church attendance in order for God to look at your life and say, I accept you, come on into heaven. Right? God's standard is perfection and all of us fall short of that standard of his glory. And here's the most humbling thing is that you and I, we are far worse sinners than we could ever know. We are so we are so sinful in ways that we're even blinded to our sinfulness, that gender distinction generals, this is not our chief problem. Our big problem is our sin and our guilt and our shame and our failures. And yet that is exactly why Jesus came and he died. And Jesus came and he removed all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our failures, not in our role distinctions, but also in every area of our lives. He removed that sin, that he bridged that gap, that chasm between a holy God and sinful humanity by dying on the cross for your sin. And look, that not only removes our sin debt, but Jesus raising to new life provides a righteousness that is now transferred into our account. God looks at you 
and he sees you hidden in Jesus, blameless in Jesus, righteous in Jesus, and that is what God looks at and accepts us and loves us, and forever we are cleansed in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Look, I wanna ask you this morning, if you're here today, have you, have you accepted that free gift of salvation? Have you put your faith in this Jesus who came to save you from your sins? Have you declared, I no longer trust in myself, I trust fully in Jesus, the risen lamb of God? And we'd love to talk to you. We've got people at the next steps table after the service. would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look again, if you're struggling with this role thing, Look to Jesus. He is our answer. He models it perfectly and provides all the grace that we need. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus. God, we end with him because he is our everything. He is our hope, Lord, he is our model. He is what has saved us from our sin. And God, we feel our dependence upon him. We cannot live out these roles that you have designed from the beginning without your help, without your mercy. So God, I pray, Lord, as we live in this world and not be of this world, I pray that you would give us the wisdom in order to know how to better apply this. God, there are thousands of ways, hundreds of, of ways that we live this out, even every week. And God, we pray that you would lead us in humility to best image you, both men and women. We pray for the glory of your name, and in Jesus I pray, amen.